Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This podcast is brought to you by Safe Ireland and Airbnb, working in partnership to support domestic violence survivors across Ireland. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. Today, we have a very special conversation for you between two friends, Irish Times journalists, Lara Marlowe and our own Cathy Sheridan. Lara has just published an extraordinary book about her relationship with renowned war correspondent Robert Fisk. And she talked to Cathy about their adventures in some of the most dangerous and divided places in the world and about the more unexpected but highly treasured gifts from the relationship. One of the many precious things that he gave to me, that he imparted to me, I might say, was his love of Ireland. Uh, And were it not for Robert, I would not have worked for the Irish Times for the last 25 years. I would not have a holiday home in Hoth and and friends like you. Um, So it was a, a great deed he did. I think you're really going to enjoy this fascinating conversation. But before we hear from Cathy and Lara, I am sure a lot of you have been already on your first plane since the pandemic carry on. But I had my first jaunt off the island last weekend and I'm still totally elated by the change of scenery. I kind of ate my way around London and it was magnificent. And I highly recommend getting a little trip away if you can afford it or if you can actually get away because I know it's hard with all the things that um, are in your life. And I know it's very depressing at the moment with the cases rising and an effort meeting to discuss more measures and all the rest. But if you can escape while you can, I recommend it. And I also want to say a big congratulations, speaking of food, to Irish Times food writers Karina Hargrave and Lily Higgins, both taking awards in the Irish Food Writers Awards. So well done to them. We have an incredible food team in the Irish Times and it's all presided over by food editor extraordinaire Marie Claire Digby, who is the woman in charge of our Food Month content all November. And we're planning a special Food Month episode of the podcast towards the end of the month. So you can look forward to that. But in the meantime, big shout out to Rosanna Davison's lovely sounding recipe on irishtimes.com today for a sweet potato chili and i'm normally not a fan of sweet potato but this sounds really delicious and there are loads of other recipes on irishtimes.com at the moment for food month so do have a look around and enjoy now to today's episode lara marlowe's memoir love in a time of war begins with robert fisk's death in october 2020 and her frantic return to Dublin to be present at the burial of the decorated war reporter and her former husband. He was the love of your life, says an old friend at the cemetery in Kiltiernan. And that's 
the beginning of Love in a Time of War. Her book is a love story, but of course it's also the story of Fisk, an international correspondent who covered the civil wars in Lebanon, Algeria and Syria, the Iran-Iraq conflict, wars in Bosnia and Kosovo, um, Afghanistan. And he was really uh, amazing and among the few Western journalists to interview Osama bin Laden, which he did three times between 1993 and 1997. Lara wrote an incredible piece recently in the Irish Times and in it she, she talked about how Robert Fisk was often described as controversial, but she said that's something she repudiates. I dislike the word, Lara wrote because it seems to imply that Robert's immense achievements are in question. If Robert was controversial, it was because he refused to conform. In nearly half a century as a journalist, which saw him win numerous press awards and publish six books, he never followed the herd. No one did journalism with greater courage, dedication, determination and intelligence than Robert. He never jumped on the bandwagon, she said. And she talked about having the honour of being married to Robert Fisk for 12 years. It's an incredible story, really. And I think it's all the more special that she talks about all of this to her good friend and colleague in the Irish Times, Cathy Sheridan. So here is their conversation about love in a time of war. Lara, this is about the 25th interview you've been doing in the past few weeks. No, it's about the fifth, actually. Is it the fifth? Uh, Big interviews. It is the fifth, exactly. Australia? Australia, Miriam O'Callaghan, Matt Cooper... Sorry, ABC, Miriam, Matt, and Anton Savage, and now Kathy Sheridan. Well, and the Women's Podcast is so delighted to have you here. You're one of our own, of course, and we're very proud of you, Lara. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. And the book is stunning. It's called Love in the Time of War, which, as a friend said to you, the love bit might sell it to the women and the war might sell it to the men. And, and I don't know, are you worried that, that neither will buy it because of the title? Uh, I hope everybody buys it. I hope that journalism students buy it more than anybody else. Um, writing it, I, I wondered if love and war were sort of oil and water and, and if they were two incompatible subjects. And I, and I kind of struggled with that. And I realized that, that I couldn't tell one without the other because they were so intertwined. They were just of a piece. And I would not have been to those wars, although I continued to cover wars for 10 years after we separated, but I would not have started covering wars if I hadn't met and fallen in love with Robert Fisk. And our relationship grew uh, in that context, so they're connected for me somehow. They are more than connected. I still remember, Lara, you possibly don't remember, but I remember bumping into you in Kosovo shortly after NATO entered Pristina. And I couldn't get a decent cup of coffee. I hadn't had one in weeks. (laughs) And Lara Marlowe appears out of nowhere to a table where the great Robert Fisk is sitting, not just with coffee that smelled delightful, but coffee in China cups. (laughs) And I said to myself, she's some operator. How did she even get here? Never mind get coffee in those gorgeous cups. So this, and and, and I I confess, I felt a real pang of jealousy for the two of you that day, because as you know, print journalists in particular, they operate in quite a solitary fashion. Mm. You may find somebody to travel with you. Uh, you you will you, you, and and I had a great guy from the Boston Globe uh, and we were great com- company for one another and everything, but I always envied TV crews who have that natural uh, relationship with one another and they're all after the same goal. 
So when I saw you and the great Robert Fisk together, I thought, <laughs> isn't that just heaven sent? Is that how it felt? Uh, probably not, although in retrospect it did. You know, everything is better uh, with nostalgia and, and looking at the past. Um, Kosu, I remember that very well in Pristina that day. And you and that gentleman with blonde hair showed up a bit bedraggled from <laughs> Macedonia. You'd come up in the wake of the NATO troops, I believe. That's right. And I suspect, I don't remember having China cups, but I now that you mention it, all the wars we covered, we sort of made a home in our hotel room. And on occasion, a place where we stayed for months and months, for example, the, the Meridian Hotel in Dahran in the run-up to the 1991 Gulf War, we would have flowers in the room, we would have posters on the wall, um, pictures of our cat. <laughs> and I would often, I always had a, a kettle to boil water so we could have coffee and tea in the room, because otherwise you're wasting a lot of time arguing with room servers or, or going down to the cafe, that sort of thing. Um, so maybe I did have china cups and, and coffee in the room, probably. <laughs> and maybe people can see now why I was so jealous. Laura, <laughs> <laughs> let's start at the beginning. So the book opens actually with a pretty stunning moment where you get a phone call from a colleague in the Irish Times. And it's to tell you that Robert Fisk has died. Yes. Maybe because they only had it from a hospital source. Exactly. So you had to absorb this as a journalist. But as someone who had been divorced for what, 10, 11 years? 11 years by then. Yeah. Um, and separated longer. We'd, we'd actually really been separated since 2002. Mm. Yeah. But you had spent two decades between your first meeting with him and the 2003 invasion of Iraq, which is the last war you covered together. So you got that phone call and that must have been an earth shaking moment. It was like getting hit with a sledgehammer. It was just um, I was in shock, absolutely in shock. Uh, in fact, I don't remember ever feeling that degree of, uh, of shock. And I just had the immediate instinctual reaction to ring the home number in Docky, which had been my number for something like 15 years. Uh, and I still knew it by heart, even though I hadn't rung it since he remarried in, in 2009. I rang that number and I spoke to his widow and she confirmed that he had passed away at St. Vincent's Hospital the previous Friday evening, two days earlier. And um, I got the details of the, the funeral the following day. And you were now in Paris. I was in Paris and it was we were in lockdown. Uh, I had no idea if I'd even be allowed on a flight. I didn't know if there were any flights. Um, and I called my dear friend Patricia O'Brien, who's the Irish ambassador to Paris. And I said, Patricia, my former husband has just died. Can I fly to Dublin? And she said, yes, absolutely. And I... And I told her the details of the times and so on, and, and uh, she rang me straight back and she said, you can't make it to the, the church for the, the actual service, but you can make it to the cemetery in time at Kilturnan Cemetery. So I booked an Aer Lingus flight. There were very few flights. I think there was maybe two flights, two or three flights a day compared to five or six or eight or something usually. Um, I booked the flight and lined up a driver to meet me and uh, just packed a one shoulder bag and and um, got up very early in the morning and and came to Dublin and it was a cold gray day I was very very windy I remember and um, I felt I was I was afraid of being late for my last rendezvous with Robert 
Um, and I was so nervous and tense about it that the driver took a wrong turn off the, the M50 and we got lost. And I, got, I did get there before the funeral procession and there was an Irish Army piper waiting in the parking lot of the, the cemetery. And I said, are you here for the Fisk funeral? And he said, yes. And I, he, he said, they haven't come yet and you'll see them. There's only one way in. So I just paced the parking lot until I saw the hearse pulling in. Um, and then we followed the hearse. I ran into several dear old friends, um, uh, Olivia O'Leary and, and Connor O'Cleary, who are Irish Times veterans. And, um, anyway, that, that, that was it. And it was, I don't, I don't know how to describe it. Um, to see, uh, I didn't actually see Robert, but I could imagine him inside the box, but to see someone who has been such a huge part of your life, uh, lowered into the ground, um, and the, the astroturf and the flowers pulled over him and, and, and that's it, that, that terrible finality that everyone talks about. Finality, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Laura, what's interesting about you and Robert is, and that scene in, the, in, in Kilturnan Cemetery is, neither of you was born in Ireland. <laughs> I don't right. think you had any 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 connection with Ireland at all. Uh, well, I my I had a very tangential connection, which was I had a great grandmother called Callie Herney, who we believe was Irish. I'm not even certain, but I, I think Callie Herney sounds like an Irish name to me. Um, Robert learned to love Ireland because he was sent to Belfast at the age of 25 by the London Times to cover the beginning of the Troubles. And he'd never been in a war before. He'd never seen a dead body before. And it was just an earth-shattering experience for him. And the other thing is he always said that was when he learned to challenge authority because he saw the British army lying. He saw British authorities lying. And that was the, the, he was off, you know, he became a war correspondent based on that experience. But while he was there, he he became very good friends with Olivia Leary and with Conor O'Cleary. And he started coming down to the Republic to, to visit friends and so on. And he ended up doing a doctorate at Trinity, buying a cottage in Dockey, which I knew very, very well. And he loved Ireland. And he always talked to me about Ireland from when he was trying to seduce me and steal me from my, my first husband. And we'll get to that. He, the great yeah. seduction, yes. <laughs> okay. Uh, but he loved Ireland. And he one of the many precious things that he gave to me, that he imparted to me, I might say, was his love of Ireland. Uh, and were it not for Robert, I would not have worked for the Irish Times for the last 25 years. I would not have a holiday home in Hoth and, and friends like you. Um, so it was a, a great deed he did. Lara, when we go back a little, I mean, Robert, Robert was English, the child of a sunny mother and a, a, a good father, I believe. An authoritarian father. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you were Californian. Yes. I've always thought of you as French. You have, you have, you have Actually, almost I, become French. I have become French. I was naturalized in, <laughs> in 2019. I mean, that's, that's a whole other story in which we don't really need to recount. I'll try to tell it in two sentences, that, which is that my mother went across Europe and the Middle East when I was five years old and came back with a, a treasure trove of, of su- tourist souvenirs. And I, I fixated on everything that was from Paris. And from the age of five, I wanted to be French and I wanted to learn French. And I made learning the French language the goal of my life. And I, I more or less got there. And I, I spent about a third of my life in Paris. 
And I'm still the France correspondent for the Irish Times. Indeed you are. Um, and now let's sort of fast forward a little bit to when you met Robert. Mm-hmm. December 1983. I worked for CBS News. I was based in Paris for the 60 Minutes programme. And we decided to do a story about the role of Syria in the Middle East as a, I hate the cliche, a power broker. And also as, a, as an arsonist uh, fireman, if you like, because the Syrians were always setting fires everywhere and then r- rushing to put them out and telling the rest of the world they were the only people who could create peace and calm in Lebanon anyway. Uh, things were very, very tense. The Syrians had just shot down an American airman over the Bekaa Valley. I was there to work on this documentary for 60 Minutes uh, with Mike Wallace and producer Barry Lando. And it was my first trip ever to the Middle East. I was, I hate to say it, out of my depth. I was 26 years old. And I had been reading Robert Fisk in the London Times for every day for a year, year and a half, something like that. And I'd read his account of the Sabra and Shatila massacre. And to me, he was... Um, I won't say a god, that would be a bit much, but I, I, I really, I hero-worshipped him. I was very, very, very impressed. And I didn't, I didn't, they, I don't think they had photo bylines then. I had no idea what he looked like or anything. But first a colleague introduced me to him in the coffee shop of the Sheraton Hotel, and he suggested I should go to this press conference with the Minister of Information that morning And I showed up there and Robert was standing a few feet away from me and he kept looking at me out of the side of his eyes, you know, sideways glances and and smiling. And he was, he had incredible energy. He was sort of bouncing up and down on his feet. And he, he just, there was something that just emanated from him, a kind of charm and energy and, and wit. He was a very funny, humorous person, um, and then at the end of the press conference, I, I was very flattered that he was showing me so much attention. He he came up to me and he said, so, Miss Laura, he always called me Miss Laura at the beginning, because that's something the Arabs do. Um, he said, how are you finding Damascus? And um, so I told him my problems with the ministry and President Assad's office and uh, all, all this sort of thing. And he, he, he knew the answer to everything. He was just an encyclopedia. And I said, well, why don't you have, I said, my boss is arriving this afternoon. Why don't you have dinner with us? And he said, I'd be delighted. So we had dinner together with my boss as a sort of chaperone that night. We ended up having three Irish coffees <laughs> at the La Chaumière restaurant in Damascus, walking back to the Sheraton. And um, I remember the next morning, I, I, I didn't sleep all night. And, and I ran into my boss, and he was also bleary-eyed. And I said, oh, the Irish coffee, that was it. That's what did it to us. And then I ran into Robert, and he was bright and trippy as ever. He, nothing affected him. He was amazing that way. And then he asked me if I could have dinner again that evening. And I said, well, is it okay if my boss comes? Yes. <laughs> I said, yes, of course. Yes, of course. And uh, so we had dinner that night in the coffee shop. And by the end of the dinner, Robert and I were looking deeply into each other's eyes. And my boss said, oh, uh, I'd better go now. <laughs> <laughs> and he, 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 so he got up and left. And, and that was the beginning. That was uh, the beginning of a, of a love story that lasted for almost 20 years. 
And I don't want to dwell on this, Lara, but it, it didn't go smoothly. I mean, it was it was there were a few years where there was a well, we know that Robert, for example, had a woman in every port, basically. Mm-hmm. I mean, in fact, he had three women on yeah, the go right. at that stage. <laughs> so can we just zip briefly through that? Uh, OK, I'll try to, to summarise. Um, that's true. Robert was was a very attractive man. His, his character and personality were, were what was so his intelligence what was, was so seductive. And I didn't take this brief fling in Damascus too seriously because I was protecting myself. I was also going out with someone and I thought, this guy is spectacular. He's amazing. I, 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 you know, I've never met anybody like this, but um, be careful, Laura. You know, you'll, he'll, you'll, you'll get hurt. So I didn't take it seriously. And yet he kept sending me cards and messages and this sort of thing. And, and so we carried on a sporadic very long distance love affair for the following four years. During um, which you got married? During which I got married. I, well, in actually, Barbados. <laughs> I must say, I got married before I had seen Robert again. I was in the process of moving to New York and I met this Canadian, very nice Canadian film producer, also called Robert, <laughs> and uh, married him about a, a little over a year after I had met Robert. And it was a mistake. And, and up to dear the- listener, can I say that during the wedding... Lara was actually praying for the second Robert to arrive at the church like Dustin Hoffman <laughs> and whisk her away. So it wasn't all that. The, the, the omens weren't good. No, no, no. And, and one should always listen, listen to one's instincts. Uh, my, my sister found me sobbing in bed the night before and, and said, oh, Lara, everyone gets cold feet. This is perfectly normal. Um, anyway, uh, but he then decided in um, the summer of 1987 that I was the one he wanted and he told me he'd broken off with all the other girlfriends and he wanted to live with me and he did this incredible seduction campaign like nothing I have ever seen from any man in my long life (laughs) Um, and it was just overpowering, it was irresistible and I kind of succumbed to his Byronic volition. <laughs> um, fortunately, I mean, I'm 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 glad that I did. Uh, and on November 26th, which we celebrated as our anniversary for many years, uh, I flew. I took a plane from New York to London Heathrow, and we started our life together. And Lara, part of the deal when you were starting your life together was that he would leave Lebanon, which yes. was the other great love of his life, I suspect. Probably the greatest love of his life because he spent 45 years with Lebanon and a lot less with me and his second wife. <laughs> and Lebanon, as you say in the book, is the great fault line between East and West, between Christendom and Islam, uh, which is what makes Lebanon so fascinating, I suppose, for so many people, but also so, so, so brutal in so many ways because all these things have clashed many, many times. Um, so you agree that Robert will move to Paris? Well, he said, he said look, the civil war was still going on in Lebanon. There were, um, I, I don't know, the hostages were coming in and going out all, all the time. There were new hostages being taken. But overall, during those years, there were about 100 Westerners being held in Lebanon. And he said, I can't possibly expect you to live there. And he knew I wanted to live in Paris. Uh, He said, I just want you to see it once, just once, so that you'll know what I'm talking about when I talk about Beirut, because I'm going to talk about it a lot. 
So in December of 87, uh, less than a month after I started living with him, we, we flew to Be- we went to Beirut. Actually, we took the ferry in from Cyprus to Beirut, and I spent 24 hours there, which is a whole chapter in my book because it was, it was an amazing experience for me. I'd never seen a country utterly destroyed by war. At that point, the Civil War had been going on for 14 years. Uh, yes, thir- 13 years by then. And, and you exulted in your survival at the end of the oh, 24 yeah. hours. I thought, I thought wow, I, I, and Americans were banned from going to Lebanon and I didn't think I'd get in trouble for it. But of course I did later, much later on. Um, but I thought that was it. And Robert actually shed a tear as, as we flew out of Beirut airport because he, I suppose he believed at that moment that he was not coming back. But of course... We went back uh, in the following May. There was a big event. The Syrians were moving into the Beirut southern suburbs to end fighting there between Amal and Hezbollah, between the two Shia militias. And we went to cover that. So, and, and that was the thin edge of thin edge of the wedge. <laughs> um, we went back again oh, a couple of months later, and I was looking for a job in journalism because I had put journalism on hold when I had married the first time. And the Financial Times offered me a job as their contract stringer in Beirut. Um, so that was it. I started taking Arabic classes. We bought a pied-à-terre in Paris to be a refuge. And I had no idea that General Michel Aoun would start his so-called war of liberation against the Syrians and that we would be under artillery bombardment uh, for six months nonstop, which he is what happened. He my dreams last night. He is, he is such a... When I say character, that makes it makes him sound affectionate, but in fact he is. And 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 they, you you even have an ending to his story, which isn't even an ending. I mean, that is the one. There are threads going through this book that you, people might not think they're interested in geopolitics or what happens in the Middle East, but in fact there are things that really hold you, or you do want to see happening. But Lara, how did you adapt to the? Was it pure adrenaline that kept you going there? Because there was always something. You were sleeping on the landing to, to mm. avoid explosions. You were sleeping in another room. You, were, you, you had to speed, at, I, I don't know, many hundred miles an hour to get through certain areas, to get into normal places. So how do you survive that? Well, you, you could say that of the hundreds of thousands of people, actually probably more, more than a million people who were living in Beirut, they survived it. So I'm not particularly heroic for having survived it. I mean, a, no, but a you, lot but, of people... But you chose this. I think that's yeah, the difference, isn't I it? I chose it. But I'm, I was a middle-class American girl. Um, and you're right. I wasn't used to the, I wasn't accustomed to this sort of thing. And, and I must admit, in the beginning, there were many times when I was terrified um, and especially the hardest thing about wars, I think, is the sleep deprivation, because when you're under bombardment all night, uh, you don't sleep and then you're wretched the next day. And, and when you don't, it's hard to write your newspaper stories and, and you get depressed. And so, so there, there is that, that element of it. But I was much younger. I was in love. It was exciting. And I was getting newspaper bylines. And um, that compensated for a lot. And Lara, how did it work with you and Robert? Would he say, because you, you, have, you say over and over in the book that he had this unbelievable instinct mm. for, for he, would gather, he would gather meaning into something in the space of three seconds. Yeah. He, knew, he knew immediately. He in knew, a flash. In a flash. He interviewed Bin Laden three times because he knew exactly 
what what was going to happen with bin Laden, for example. Well, I, I don't think he foresaw the, the Twin Towers or 9-11, but yes, he recognized the significance. We were told about bin Laden by Jamal Khashoggi, who you remember was brutally, horribly murdered, sawed into pieces by um, Mohammed bin Salman's henchman in 2018. And we met him in Algiers in January 1991. And it was actually, I met him, I had coffee with him in the Al Jazeera Hotel, and he he said there's this Saudi preacher um, who is developing quite a following in Saudi Arabia and, and people adore him and, and he's very anti-Western and, and you, you should know about this guy. And I, I went back to our room. I said, Robert, you, you, I want to introduce you to someone. And I interested him to Jamal. And Jamal arranged an interview for Robert with Osama bin Laden in Khartoum. Well, actually outside Khartoum, but in Sudan. Uh, in 1993. That was his first interview with bin Laden. And then the second and third times, it was bin Laden who contacted Robert and wanted to see him again. And each time, Robert made bin Laden wait uh, because he didn't want bin Laden to think that he was at his beck and call. And that was that's one of the things I most regret in my career as a journalist is that I did not go with Robert to interview bin Laden and basically the reason is that my editors at Time magazine were so difficult. And I found over and over again when I wanted to do stories about Islamic fundamentalism, it would have headlines about terrorists, 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 and, and the things that they were saying would become distorted. And I just didn't have the energy to, to fight that battle. And, and so I didn't pursue the bin Laden interview, but that was my mistake. Uh, and Robert was absolutely right. And that's one of the things for which he is most remembered. I, I think that in his opinion, it was probably less important than some of the other stories that he did. But because of the purely sensational aspect of this man responsible for the atrocities of 9-11, that will go down in history, that Robert Fisk was the only Western journalist who interviewed him three times. And chances are that anybody who remembers that picture of bin Laden in a cave uh, looking, I think Robert said, a bit like Fagan. Um, exactly. Uh, that was a stunning photograph. Was taken and by there Robert. Was, there was one um, phrase that Robert used to use, and I, I have it, I think, three times in the book. He would come back from a story and he'd say, I got it, I got it. And that excitement, that he was just bursting with excitement. Actually, the first time was I recounted early on in the book when he left his camera in a taxi cab in Paris and the Cambodian cab driver had kept it. And Robert, being as how he was, actually went up to the banlieue and, and got his camera back from the taxi driver and nobody else could have done that. The second time I remember uh, was the uh, Kana, after the Kana massacre in southern Lebanon, he learned that there was a video from taken from a drone. Uh, no, it was a, a video taken by a UN soldier of an Israeli drone overhead, which was doing real-time relay of the massacre as it was happening, as the artillery sh shells were exploding and cutting people up on the ground. And Robert went back day after day after day to southern Lebanon he was determined to get that video. And the day he came back, he, he burst into the apartment and said, I got it, I got it, I got it. And when he came back with that photograph of bin Laden, he, it was the same, I got it, I got the photo. And he couldn't wait to show me the photos. It, it, was, it was brilliant. And that, and that photo was taken by, they, they wanted him to use a flash. And he said, no, a flash 
flattens a person's face. He said, do you have candles or something? And they had a paraffin lamp. And there was an Egyptian um, Al-Qaeda member who held the lamp up next to uh, uh, bin Laden's face. And it's a very, very dramatic photo. It's, the, um, it's in, in, in his last book, The Great War for Civilization. I think almost everybody would recognise it if they saw it. Anyway, that was taken by Robert Fisk. Laura, what would happen? Would, would, would you be, you'd be in Lebanon or somewhere and would Robert say, um, I'm getting a sniff of a story uh, and you would go along? Or how did things evolve? Well, he was he was definitely the leader, at least in the in the first years. He yeah. was a bit of a starstruck in those I was. I, I called it, but... Um, you know, I contributed as well. I mean, it wasn't, and I, I had story ideas as well. And there were many times when I said, oh, Robert, you better look at this or we should go here. But by and large, you're right, this, especially in the beginning, I called it the Fisk School of Journalism. And that's that's a title of the chapter in, in the book. And he taught me how to navigate the logistics, how to find out, you know, whether there was a flight to Baku or um, Goma or all these places that Time magazine was sending me, how to to um, deal with the finances and get the newspaper to send money to the bank in Beirut so I could... All of those very, you know, brass tacks things. How to work a tax machine, um, Robert Ooh. taught me. Yeah, <laughs> very, very important in, in those days. But he also taught me the, the, the big lessons, which were don't believe what the government say. Don't uh, always challenge authority. Never believe anybody. Um, and never take no for an answer. Just keep at it. Never give up. Uh, and, and that was very valuable. I know. I remember my first trip to Kosovo was without Robert. I went with Time magazine sent me with a photographer. And we got turned around at the border. And so we just regrouped a kilometer away, got out a carton of cigarettes to bribe the guys and went back again. And we got through the second time. And that was the sort of thing I learned from Robert that you you just don't give up which is one and one reason uh why journalists or budding journalists should read this book there were also things sort of on the very much sort of basic things lara which struck me he he sort of told you not not to bury the lead for example you know to <laughs> to hear that that is the story but you have it down in paragraph 12 or something mm-hmm. not to use clichés to shed the phd syndrome Yes. Um, to, not to over-research things, which I think a lot of us tend to do. Mm. Have you overcome that, 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 that need to over-research everything? Uh, no, I haven't. Um, some things are incurable and, and invariably I, I, I'm always begging for more space in the Irish Times because I always have too much I want to say. Um, but I, sometimes I can almost hear Robert laughing and, and saying, oh, you're doing your PhD syndrome again. <laughs> you know? uh, but much of it I did, I did learn. Um, he, he taught me a great deal. He, he taught me everything. And even, even though I'd been a journalist before, yes. I, I was a journalist for, for years before I met him. But he was the best possible teacher. He really was. He was a whole other level. Yes. Um, I suppose, Lara, what comes through in this book, so, so I think what makes it digestible in many ways is the, the interweaving of, of your love and your relationship and the cat and all that stuff <laughs> and the various the friends you made with the absolute butchery and carnage of war when you see it close mm-hmm. up. Mm-hmm. Algeria floored me. I'm very sorry I read it so late at night. There are stories in that that actually really... I suppose was it Robert who said if, if you if people saw what we see they would never ever support a war, mm. 
And I'm kind of fascinated by that and how, because I know you took a slightly more nuanced view of that, maybe, in the sense that some wars maybe are just wars. But he could never. He was a complete pacifist. Absolutely. Unconditional pacifist. I mean, the only war for which I could see a justification, which we covered together, was the 1991 Gulf War, because Saddam Hussein had invaded Kuwait and the Iraqis were occupying Kuwait in a very cruel fashion. They were raping and murdering and pillaging on a, on a grand scale. Uh, there was a UN Security Council resolution demanding that the Iraqis leave Kuwait. And Robert and I argued about this. And I said, well, how do you get Saddam out of Kuwait? You can't let this stand. And he said, no, war is wrong. War is wrong. And I, I said, well, what would you have done about Hitler? And he said, Oh, no, not you, Laura, because at the time, uh, Bush, it, this was Bush's father, George Herbert Walker Bush, and um, was it John Major then? I think it was. But all, all of these leaders, I mean, every time, yes, and, and then the following, the subsequent Gulf War, we had um, Bush Jr., that's right, and Tony Blair. But all of them, every time there was a war, would pretend they were Winston Churchill and, and refer to uh, Milosevic was supposed to be Hitler and Saddam Hussein was supposed to be Hitler. So, And I said to Robert, but, you know, you can't just get out of it that way. His answer was always, you should not have supported Saddam Hussein during the uh, war with Iran which was true, that was that was unjust and illegal and the CIA was giving Saddam maps and so on. And I said, yes, but what do you do when a country illegally invades another country? And so that, that was the argument. But ultimately, when I saw what was done under that UN Security Council resolution, the, the highway of death where the US massacred fleeing Iraqi soldiers, uh, the Amaria shelter in Baghdad, where um, hundreds of Iraqi civilians were, were bombed by the Americans. Uh, and to a certain extent in the 99 war in, in former Yugoslavia as well, where the, the Americans and NATO kept bombing civilians. They even bombed the refugees who they were fighting, supposedly fighting to save. Uh, so even though those wars in some ways seemed necessary because we had to prevent Milosevic committing genocide against the Kosovar Albanians as he had done in Bosnia against the Bosnian Muslims. Uh, yes, you could see why it was justifiable, but no, it was not just. And the execution was so flawed that I could never have been a part of it or approved of it or voted for it if I'd had the choice. So it, it's a very difficult question. It is a very difficult question. And I, was, I, I think it's part of the, the great honesty of the book is that you, you tease it at certain points. Um, and I'm also fascinated that Robert was an unconditional pacifist because we all know war correspondents who, 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 who just... Who cheerlead. Who cheerlead. A lot and, of them cheerlead. And, and, and actually... It's their war. It's, 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 it's the adrenaline is, 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 what, is what moves them. That, that's why they need to be war correspondents. Uh, Robert was absolutely livid when he would see Western reporters in military fatigues pretending to be soldiers and being embedded with Western military forces. He was absolutely disgusted by it, and I shared that disgust. And I must say, though, we'd had a nuance, uh, a different nuance of opinion over the 
1991 Gulf War and even perhaps over the 1990 war in Yugoslavia, by the time it came to 2003, when the US and Britain led the invasion of Iraq, we were both categorically, totally, absolutely against that war. We knew it would be a disaster. And our colleagues, many of our colleagues, uh, criticized us severely. And, and we, were, we were really maligned for this. We were called stooges of Saddam Hussein, that sort of thing. And I remember a colleague at Newsweek saying, those people deserve to be liberated too, speaking of, of the Iraqis. That was not the way to do it. They gave Iraq to Iran on a silver platter uh, they destroyed Iraq and it ha has not recovered and probably never will. The new Safe Ireland Survivor Fund, in partnership with Airbnb, enables Safe Ireland to contribute to sustainable supports for women and frontline services and to provide focused actions for children. You can play a critical role in helping to protect more women and children from abuse. Donate directly to your local domestic violence service or to the national work of Safe Ireland. Go to www.safeireland.ie for more information. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Lara, as a woman in the Middle East, 30 years ago, 20 years ago, even now, mm -hmm. uh, there is a dress code. There are things that women are supposed to do and not do. What was that like for you? It wasn't as important as you might think. I think that probably 95% or 98% of what a man reporter could do, I could do. And I also had access to women, which men did not. I can only remember maybe three or four incidents in the more than a decade I was in the Middle East when it really was was a problem. Uh, once when I went to interview a sheikh in, in a mosque across the street from our hotel in Dahran in the run-up to the Gulf War, and Robert said, I'm going with you. And I said, no, it's okay, I'll go on my own. He said, you won't get in without me. And he was right, of course. And I wore a long dress and a headscarf and... We, they kept us waiting out in the sun, in, in the sun in Saudi Arabia in August. I think it's, it's really, really hot. You're talking 35, 40 degrees Celsius. And finally they let us in and, and there was a man, a Saudi with a, 
a headdress and a robe, sitting in an armchair, clutching the arms of the chair in anger. And he said, in perfect American English, he said, you're probably wondering why we kept you waiting out in the sun. And I said, well, yes, actually, it crossed my mind. And he was a, a captain in the Saudi National Guard. He was trained in the U.S. And he said, well, in this country, we think men and women should be kept separate. And I, I don't need to tell you how I felt about that. I had a similar experience in Afghanistan uh, after 9-11. After that was without Robert. I was there on my own. And I was working with French journalists. And we tried to get into a base of the Northern Alliance who were allied with the U.S., allied with the, the West. And there was a, an Afghan man sitting on a big concrete block picking his toenails and he waved my male colleagues in and said, no, you can't go in. And I said, why? And he said, because you're a woman. Um, so that sort of thing happens, but not as often as you would think. Mm. There's also a scene in the book, which I have to say made me laugh, where you're offered the chance of a swim in this lovely <laughs> pool, uh, but they insist you're wearing a baya. Exactly. And in, you nearly drown. In Saudi Arabia, <laughs> exactly. And, and they locked me in. I was the only human being in this pool uh, area. And I jumped in and tried to do the crawl and I got all tangled up in, in this abaya. I looked like a big black water lily and I just gave up. It was impossible. Lovely. And I think at one point you say it's, it's, it's not about modesty. It's not about religion. It's about power, humiliation and intimidation. That was in Tehran when mm. I went to cover a conference and the, they, they sent a woman to tell me that my, my dress was immodest. And I was wearing a headscarf and my dress, I was wearing a black dress to sort of mid calf length and black stockings. And I was furious and I went out and bought the ugliest, longest, baggiest thing I could find uh, and wore it for years and years and years. Every time I went to Tehran, almost out of vengeance, so sort of like, you say I'm immodest, well, I'll show you. <laughs> <laughs> how, how, how modest I can be. <laughs> Lara, your life with Robert up to a certain point was wonderful. Your heart's beat as one with regard to work and your ideals and how you covered wars and how you sort of perceived other human beings and the utter complexity of, of the Middle East. And you had that all in your grasp. But at some point, the marriage began to deteriorate. Mm. And one of the things that I have to say did surprise me greatly was you were the one who had the affair to begin with. Well, I'm not sure, because one of the reasons I had the affair, I mean, there is no justification for it, so I'm not making excuses for myself but I suspected at the time that Robert was having an affair because there was a, an attractive French photographer who he was going off on stories with, sometimes for two or three days at a time in, in the desert in Saudi Arabia and then again in the desert in Syria. And I was, I suppose jealous would be the word. I was suspicious. I was suspicious. And at one point I thought he was with her in Jerusalem and confronted him. And because he had told me when, when we were when he was seducing me, I said, how did you manage to have affairs with three or four women at a time? And he said, lie, lie, lie. Mm -hmm. And which, and I, and he said it laughing, of course, but of course I remember that. And when we were living together, we were not yet married. He didn't want at that point in time, didn't want to get married, though we later married. He didn't want to have children. And I didn't know. And that made it easier, I suppose. Now, I will never know, and I've come to accept the fact that I will never know who was unfaithful first. 
but I was, to my eternal regret, I, I, I wasn't faithful. I had an affair. Um, it's been, what, 20, no, 30, sorry. It's been almost 30 years now. And um, this is sort of one of the true confessions of the book. Um, very, very few people knew about it. And I suppose that after 30 years, uh, when you get to be in your 60s, um, you feel like, well, I guess I can tell that now, can't I? Um, and Lara, it really only became an issue when you discovered that he actually was uh, probably seeing somebody else. Yes, uh, he knew about it from the beginning. I didn't, didn't know that. I did not know that he knew. Uh, I wish that I had confessed when I, I ended it because I realized that I loved Robert and that I'd done something bad. And I should have told him then. And we should have talked it through and maybe everything would have been okay. But instead, it, it festered in his mind. Um, he didn't ever mention it for eight years until I confronted him with his affair. And he snapped back, you had an affair. Um, and that was sort of the beginning of the end, except for the fact that the end lasted for several years. Uh, and it was very long and drawn out and painful for both of us. Uh, and yet I'm very glad that we managed to salvage a friendship and mutual respect from all that, that drama. Because I think part of the huge appeal of this book is, is this extraordinary honesty about Robert. You know, you've, you've managed to immerse yourself back in those years, but at the same time, you have this detachment which allows you to say he's an absolutist, unforgiving. It allows you to tell that story mm. with incredible insight to me, which I think a lot of people will read and say, my goodness, that sounds like something that happened to me, that he could not forgive you, but you could move past that and you were always the one who was ready to reconcile. I think there's a big difference in our characters. Um, I, I, I write in the book how Robert could never forgive his father for sending him to British public school when he was nine years old. And Robert would come home crying and saying, please don't send me back to that place. And Bill would say, we've got to make a man out of your fellow. And it, it, to the point that when his father was dying, I mean, it, this there were other problems with the relationship. His father was very right wing, very authoritarian, and Robert was in permanent rebellion against him. But uh, when Bill was dying uh, in 1992, Robert wouldn't go and see him. He was also uh, very unforgiving towards Juan Carlos, who was his compañero, his best friend during the last years of the war in Beirut. And it was over a silly macho remark that Juan Carlos made to me. It was actually the remark was, you'll never be a woman until you a real woman until you have children. Robert was furious and he broke off the friendship for that reason. And in the same way, he knew that I'd been unfaithful and he could never forgive me. Uh, although I think he tried at one point. It, after several years later, he wanted to marry me and we married and we were very happy for a while. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, when he started having an affair, that all came back. And, and it's a sign of Robert's strength of character because he was a very, very strong character. Mm -hmm. And my lack of self-confidence and weakness that I ended up begging him for forgiveness for an affair that was long, long over while he was having an affair at the time. 
so that seemed a bit backwards, but that is exactly what happened. And you moved on, Lara. He remarried. Yes. Uh, in 2009. Exactly. And you continued to pursue your glittering career. <laughs> I don't think I'd call it glittering. I enjoyed, I've enjoyed journalism. I've enjoyed working for the Irish Times. I, I lived in Washington for the paper for nearly four years. I love living in Paris. I have wonderful friends. And yes, I've had a good life. It was the, the end of the marriage was very sad for me. But um, your life doesn't end. You You mustn't let it end. And one thing that writing this book has done for me is that I've come to realize that questions like who was unfaithful first, for for example, there are other questions, that doesn't really matter. Um, and you have to hang on to all that was good and beautiful in the relationship uh, and and be grateful for, I am immensely grateful, and I say this every time I talk about Robert or about the book, for everything he gave me, for what he taught me about journalism, for introducing me to Ireland uh, for introducing me to Lebanon and and being such a great companion for for all those years. And Lara, just going back very briefly to end with a question about geopolitics and the utter despair I think many of us feel about the state of the world. Um, is there any lesson to be taken that could be applied to what's going on in the world right now? <sighs> I... I blame a lot on Western leaders. I mean, the West has destroyed the Middle East, first of all, by drawing up the borders the way they did after the at the end of the First World War, uh, then by uh, doing the, the Anglo-American coup against uh, Mossadegh, the only democratically elected leader of Iran in the 1950s, uh, by unconditionally supporting the state of Israel. I'm not saying that the state of Israel should not exist. Far from that. It, it was created by a, a UN mandate. But um, UN uh, Security Council resolutions say Israel is supposed to withdraw from the Arab land it occupies, and it has not done so, and no one has tried to enforce that. And, and the US uh, gives Israel billions of dollars worth of weapons every year and they use it to kill people in the West Bank and Gaza and to steal more land in the West Bank almost on a daily basis. And we let this go on. Uh, the invasion of Iraq in 2003 w was horrific. And what we reap from all of this is Islamic State uh, extremist attacks on European territory, uh, it, it, it's this this George W. Bush's war on terrorism has been going on for 20 years now, and it, it's a catastrophe. So if there was one lesson to be learned, it's that the West needs to, Western leaders need to have a rational, thought-out, long-term policy towards the Middle East. And part of that policy must be non-intervention and not supporting dictators and, and, and not you know, changing their minds all the time. You know, they wanted to support the opposition in Syria and Bashar al-Assad was supposed to leave. And now people are, are renewing links with Bashar al-Assad and there's no consistency over the years either. Um, so I, I think it's really important that in the West, people recognize 
the, the, the relationship between cause and effect and take responsibility for their actions and not do stupid, rash things and not support unequivocally, unconditionally Israel. And I think if they could do one good thing, it would be to make sure that there is a state for the Palestinians. That is the original wound which continues to fester and which no one is even talking about now. No one is addressing it. And as long as, as that continues, it will be a, another source of, of instability. Um, if they can renew the Iran nuclear accord, that will be a good thing. The negotiations have been going very badly, but they're set to resume at the end of this month, at the end of November. Um, but it's just a can of worms. It is really a... Winston Churchill had predicted that that uh, Palestine would be a hell disaster. And, and I think it's fair to say the whole region is a hell disaster yes. now. Yes, yes. Lara Marlowe, I think that was a sample of what's in Lara Marlowe's head and her brain and her very DNA at this stage. I can see a future for you talking to people, to journalists, to people about geopolitics, um, all sorts of things. Thank you, Cathy. I think I'd like to just walk by the sea. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I think you can do more than that. <laughs> Lara Marlowe, it has been a pleasure. And the book is a wonderful, complex, nuanced, emotional read, actually. So thank you for that. Thank you. And that's all we have time for. Thanks so much to Lara Marlowe and Cathy Sheridan. Love in a Time of War is out now. That's it for me. The podcast is produced by me, Roisin Ingle, by Suzanne Brennan and Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound. Do tell your friends about the podcast if you like it and get in touch with us on social at IT Women's Podcast. We're on Instagram or Twitter and we're on email, thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com. If there's anything at all that you want us to cover, get in touch with us and we'll hopefully be able to do that. So mind yourselves, try and get an escape if you can and I'll talk to you next time. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 